The Deviation Podcast. Welcome to the Deviation Podcast. My name is Paige, and today I'm so excited to say that Jeremy Spitzer is here with me. Jeremy, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, my name is Jeremy Spitzer. I'm from uh, outside Albuquerque, New Mexico, and I am the co-founder and executive director of a small nonprofit called Charlie Five. Uh, we train horses and we get them to veterans to help them uh, become leaders again. We basically our mission is we believe in the power horsemanship to challenge and inspire our nation, nation's veterans to become leaders again. Um, so that's really what we do. Thank you for having me. I love here. that. Really appreciate it. Oh, gosh, of course. I'm so excited that you're here. I mean, the work that you do and kind of where you've come from and why it is that you founded this organization is just, it's really incredible. Um, so, to start, do you want to just kind of start from the beginning and kind of walk us through how it is you've become who you are today and you've gotten to where where you are now? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I was born here in Albuquerque. Um, I grew up, family was kind of a country family before Albuquerque turned into the thriving megalopolis that it wants to be. I grew up around horses and working with horses. My mom had horses her whole life. We had horses as kids growing up. And uh, um, uh, my dad retired from the fire department here, and we moved to Colorado, and we got out of horses. It was just too expensive, and I rodeoed in high school and um, rode bucking horses and did all kinds of crazy dumb stuff and worked on ranches. And um, So I graduated high school in – 1998 or something like that and I uh um thought I was going to spend the next couple few years couple few years rodeoing and and going to college and I seems that I was horrible at both so <laughs> um, <laughs> so so and uh November 1st 2000 I left for basic training um I joined the military and, and left for basic training I did, I was going to, I had dead end jobs I wasn't wasn't really doing anything. I was just um, dead in jobs. Wasn't living my life the way I should have been living it. And um, I. What made you think figured, to join the military? Um, I didn't have any other options. I knew that I needed to find a job that I couldn't quit. Um, mm-hmm. And they, and I, there was that. And during the time um, in in Albuquerque, I really wanted to be a police officer. And at that time I went into the military, I, um, I, the, the city of Albuquerque had a, you could be a lateral police officer if you uh, spent four years as a military police officer. So my goal was to go into the air force, be a police officer, be a security forces member, and then be, um, and then get out and then just lateral into the Albuquerque Police Department without having to go through all kinds of extra training. Um, and that was the plan, but it just didn't quite work out the way I wanted it to. Um, I was injured 
during training, um, I dislocated my shoulder and, and they kicked me out of cop school and they sent me to cook school. And I spent uh, my Air Force career um, as a cook. Um, and that was, it was kind of frustrating, but there came a point where I just realized I had to make the most of the situation. So um, that's how that, that's how that worked out. Uh, as far as that goes. So how did, so then you were in the Air Force and then what, what happened after that? Like, how did you make the most of that situation? How did you end up, how did you end up going into the Army? Like, how did that all tie together? Well, um, I knew I didn't want to be a cook and I didn't, I didn't work as a cook. The, the job field in the Air Force, you be a cook, you can work in the fitness center, you can work in lodging. And I was actually working in the fitness center and, um, it was 9-11 was, uh, was just, uh, a pivotal, I mean, it was, it was an incredible, it was a horrific, incredible day for everyone. And, um, I had never had any intention of spending any more than four years in the military, uh, until, uh, until November 11th or September 11th. And I was working in the fitness center and I was walking through the cardio room and there was the TV was on and they were showing that airplane had just hit, um, the, the first tower. And I went into the office and I told my sergeant, I said, I, I mean, very vividly, I remember telling him, I said, Hey, some drunk pilot just crashed a plane into the, into some big building in New York. And he's like, what? So we came out and we're all watching and we're all standing there watching and glued to the TV. And like a lot of people, we watched that second plane hit the, hit the second tower on live TV. And, um, I just made the decision right. I knew, I knew at that point that it wasn't some drunk pilot because at the, at the time on the news, they were saying they didn't really know what was going on. When I saw that second plane hit, I knew we were being attacked. And, um, I said, I just made a decision that I was going to do at that point. I was going to do whatever I could. Um, I was going to make every effort to be, uh, to do my part, um, and, and, and just do my part. So, uh, we watched everything unfold. I remember everything going on lockdown at the base. It was just a really crazy, uh, next few days, um, being in the military. And, um, I actually, uh, I got in a little bit of trouble. <laughs> Right after, not like significant trouble, but I, I made some people mad in my unit because uh, shortly after that, I volunteered for my first deployment, and I was with the Air Force. So um, 9-11 happened, and I deployed um, as, as part of a security detail in, I want to say it was like March or April uh, following September 11th. So I deployed to Kuwait and as a part of, secure, of a security detail. I was there for like three months. Um, what was that like? Not, it was it was it was very interesting. Um, you know, I, I trained to be. I went I went through my training and everything to be uh, a cook, basically, and um, work in the fitness center. And um, I went I went there, and my job there was going to be watching. They call them TCNs or third country nationals. They're the people who, you know run the chow hall or work in the chow hall or they 
a you know clean up or whatever and your job the job there is to 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 watch them while they're working well they had found out that i had started out as in security forces and i got and they call them augmentees so i augmented they gave me a gun and a whole bunch of other stuff that i <laughs> wasn't given before and they they made me a security policeman while I was deployed. And so I augmented the security forces squadron that was there in, in at our base. And I did all the jobs with the exception of like arresting people, which doesn't really, didn't really happen, but I did all the same work the security forces guys did. So I was out on the flight line, patrolling the flight line. I was up in uh, towers watching, um, watching stuff, um, you know, as an observer or Things like that. I patrolled and did all kinds of stuff like that while I was deployed on that deployment. Totally different from anything I expected to ever do in the line of work after learning how to cook, you know, with the Air Force. Yeah, no kidding. Did you feel yeah. prepared for it? Um. Well, yeah. I mean, I as prepared as I could be. I mean, I. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of. That's kind of what I wanted. Up to that point, from being a kid and stuff, I wanted to be a cop or something like that. So I didn't feel uncomfortable doing it. Um, I just wasn't. I just didn't. It was unexpected. So they put me right. through the. They put me through some training and taught me how to do the things I needed to do. Um, you know, I just did the job and talked on the radio when I needed to talk on the radio and checked IDs when I needed to check IDs and looked out for things when I needed to look out for things and stuff like that. So. Um, I mean, but yeah, it changed, it changed me, um, for sure. I mean, I, I remember coming back to the States after that and not, I mean, struggling to an extent. I I mean, I had, it was just a, it was a, I was there a short time, but it was just an adjustment that I thought I was having to go through when I, when I came back. But I mean, I definitely grew up and I changed and stuff like that. So I, it was it was a cool experience, nonetheless. I mean, it was I had fun, <laughs> um, and and then I, I stayed. I was stationed in Texas. I stayed there, and and I was doing my job. They had a program. I don't know if it's a program or an opportunity, whatever. It it enabled me to get released, an honorable discharge from active duty Air Force. And without a, sep- a break in service, I transitioned over to the uh, to the Air National Guard. And I was my goal was to come back to Albuquerque and be in the National Guard and then go be a policeman again. Mm-hmm. So um, I came back and I was working on testing for the police department and becoming trying to become a policeman. And things just weren't panning out the way I wanted to. I had. I had debt, you know, stupid kid debt from being in the military. I did everything that they told us not to do um, with powers of attorney and debt and stuff like that. So, um, <laughs> and so I had a lot of debt. So the police department didn't want me. So I was trying to figure out what I was going to do. And um, during that time, it just happened that I got, I found out that there was a detail of, uh, airmen who could go work at the Air Force Base here in Albuquerque, Kirtland Air Force Base, and be put on orders, full-time 
full-time active duty um, and, again, doing security uh, as a security detail at Kirtland Air Force Base. So um, I got I hopped on those orders, and if you're not familiar with you know, how the National Guard works and stuff like that, you go one weekend a month, and then you have a two-week period every year where you go train, um, but you can be activated by the federal government to cover different missions. There's a lot of people down on the border of Mexico right now uh, on those same kind of orders. Uh, where you're put on federal orders, you're treated like a regular active duty soldier for the most part, and you're paid like an active duty uh, service member. And that's what I was doing here at Kirtland. So I was I was standing at the gate um, at Kirtland Air Force Base at different gates and checking IDs and, and securing uh, the perimeter of the base. Um, still, uh, my job code reflected that I was um that I was a cook. <laughs> so um I did that yeah. for yeah, I did that for quite some time. Um I, I don't remember I mean I, if I could figure it out, but I did it for, for about a year, I think. And while I was on those orders I got to know um some of the army guys that I worked with, some of my army counterparts that were doing the same job but with the army. And I learned that they, the New Mexico National Guard was in the process of standing up an infantry, uh, an infantry unit and that, um, um, they were looking for more soldiers and there was a possibility I could go to airborne school and air assault school, ranger school and, uh, throw grenades, and jump out of helicopters and airplanes and do all kinds of really cool stuff that at 20, some early 20s, it was all very appealing to to me. Um, oh yeah, yeah. So I was like, yeah, I want to jump out of airplanes and throw grenades, and I want to do all that cool stuff because that sounds like like a blast. I was single, I wasn't married, I didn't have any kids, I didn't have anything else going on. So, um, started talking to a recruiter, and um, I was able to actually make a pretty seamless transition from the Air National Guard to the Army National Guard. And um, that was like, I'm trying to think of how that, I think it was June 2004. So I'd already been in the military for about four years at this point, altogether all my time. And so, um, and I made that transition. So June, um, I made my transition, then I went to, um, I was, so you take a cook out of the Air Force and put him in the Army National Guard and then send him to infantry school. And by December, I think of that year, yeah, December of that year, I was put on, uh, I was put on alert that I was going to be, I was going to be deployed. Uh, with the with the mm-hmm. army side, mm-hmm. yeah. So I was at this point. I was in E4. I was a specialist in the army, um, and the our state was building up this task force uh, company size element um, uh, to deploy in support of uh, OIF OEF Operation Iraqi Freedom and Operation Enduring Freedom, and um, so they kind of pulled people from all over the state. We even had guys um, from all over the country coming in to our unit, and they assembled a unit. 
to be forward deployed. And um, as this, I didn't, they put me somehow, some way, I, they made me a fire team leader. So I never really truly understood at the time. I was like a fire team leader. So I had like three or four guys underneath me. I was in, I was in charge of like three or four guys and uh, directed them and did that kind of stuff. And um, yeah, we, so that was December. And then we left, honestly, we left right about this time, November, just before Thanksgiving, uh, 2005 is when, when we left or, um, we were deployed. So we, no, we left in August and mobilized at Fort Lewis in Washington state, uh, near Seattle. And we were there for a while. And then we, then we deployed to, um, we deployed to Kuwait, um, with a company size element. And, um, and then we kind of figured out what our jobs was going to be from there. We, we, as like soldiers, as the, you know, outside of the command staff, I don't even know if the command staff within our company knew what our job was going to be until we got to theater. Um, but we, we'd, we'd trained to do it. So, um, we arrived at Camp Deering, um, kind of got things set up and they issued us all a bunch of, equipment and the equipment we had that we had been issued was wasn't the best right we didn't have the best gear um mm -hmm. in the world and i don't care what anybody says it's hot in the desert except for in like november december january then it's cold <laughs> how <laughs> cold does it get out there i i mean you go from days i want to say that the days were like in the 90s to, like, mm -hmm. nights that drop down to, like, the 40s, 50s. I mean, Jeez. I just remember it being – I remember it being frigid, and it was, like, the wettest year on record. Um, oh, God. Uh, from what I remember, and it was – I remember it flooding out this whole town that we drove through uh, just inside the Iraq uh, border of Iraq called – a town called Safwan. Um, it flooded out that whole town, and, and uh, routes were black. We couldn't move and stuff like that, and the people in Safwan were all mad at us, and – throwing rocks at us and stuff like that because they said it was all our fault that it rained. And um, and so... Oh, gosh. Yeah, so we... So they broke us down and they restructured our, our unit and we went into three-man fire teams. And so you had nine guys per platoon. Um, no. Anyway, there was nine of us. And I can't remember if it was, mm -hmm. yeah, it was a, no, it was a squad. So nine guys per squad and there were three okay. guys per gun, per gun truck. So, um, so you had a, a driver, you had a truck commander and you had a gunner and, uh, it just worked out. And when you say a truck, do you mean like a, is that like one of those giant Humvees? Yeah, it was a Humvee. So it was a, a okay. it was an up armored, um, we finally, uh, finally got an up armored Humvee. But when we first got there, we had, had like, I don't know if you recall, but there was a lot of controversy surrounding the equipment that we had in Iraq and Afghanistan in the early couple years of, of the war. So um, our first Humvee was had what they called, what I recall as being an up-armored kit. And so it was just a regular Humvee with, like, Kevlar blankets 
and doors that were bolted on and um like my shield on my turret of my Humvee was just steel and it wasn't that thick. Um <laughs> it was Jeez. it was so you probably was, felt incredibly safe then. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I, um, my turret didn't work. It didn't spin around 360 degrees. It would, um, get stuck. So I'd have, it was just a funny story. Cause I would, if I wanted to traverse all the way around in a circle, I'd get stuck on one side. I have to go back all the way around the other direction. And there was really no way to, I couldn't fix it. And it was just, you know, it was one of those things where you're like, yeah, this is just what you got. You make do with what you got. But um, the the shield that was in front of my – that was around my 50-cal machine gun, um, they had used welding rod, and they had drawn with welding rod Texas on there, whoever had it before us, and it said El Tejano. So <laughs> I just remember that as being pretty funny. It was just the biggest hunk of junk Humvee that – there was, and we 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 made it work. We I would sit on ammo cans, and um, I didn't have anywhere to sit. There was a, most Humvees had like a sling, so like a mm-hmm. mesh web belt that you would sit on, and you'd keep your they call it like neck defilade, um, where you keep everything below the neck, neck and below uh, inside the cab of the Humvee, and you could look out above the Humvee. Um, I didn't have any of that stuff. I sat on like ammo cans and stuff like that and we cruise up and down the road and we we're always breaking down and then um oh, man. that sounds that sounds awful it was i mean i don't think it was really we were just i think we were um more than anything i think we were just happy we had equipment you know it could be worse we say hey, look there is yeah there is there is armor here, you know. <laughs> yeah. I don't care if it's only sixteenth no, of an inch steel. Uh, it's it's armor. It's better than nothing. Um, I don't really recall that. I just remember the tempo was extremely. It was brutal. Um, and then we finally got. Um, then we finally got a like what I called a real Humvee, um, and it was up armored. It was it was like the latest and greatest Humvee. Um, and everything worked on it. So, and it, I didn't have to like manually spin it, uh, spin the turret. I actually <laughs> had like a, I had like a crank and I could spin it mm-hmm. that way and it all, and it all worked. Um, and coincidentally, the name of the, our Humvee's call sign was Charlie Five. Um, and we were the only Charlie in our whole company and the whole company was Echo Company. But we got the leftover seconds. Um, they didn't have enough Humvees, and they gave us some other company's Humvee, and it was Charlie Five. So that that's, that's cool. where I came up with the name. Came up with the name of our um, organization, and it wasn't Tan, like everybody else's. Everybody had these, like these really pretty, like cool tan, like desert tan Humvees. <laughs> ours was like ours was like half green and half tan. So. <laughs> <laughs> we stuck out like a sore thumb, um, but it was it was funny because me and Brian and Joey, these were the guys that were all in my crew on my team. We always joked around about like Charlie Five was the best Humvee out there. We you know it it never broke down. Um, uh, we got home safe every time. We all came home ten fingers, ten toes, and you know 
it, it did right by us every single time. So that's why, that's why I named the organization Charlie Five is kind of like a, our home and like a good luck charm is, 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 we never broke down. We never had any real issues with it. I love that. But we, we stuck out like a sore thumb. So. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> so. And you said so, you were guys, you guys were going at an intense pace. What do you, what do you mean by that? So where, like, what was, what were you doing and what was the pace like? So our unit was uh, tasked with running what they called white convoys or contractor convoys um, between a small base in northern Kuwait and basically a big truck stop uh, just outside of Nazaria. So uh, there's a, a like an interstate highway that runs between there, and we would there we had three gun trucks per team, and we would run an escort and escort 30 semi-trucks going north and south so that we provided protection for them um, along that supply route. And that those – it was crazy because those sometimes those those convoys would get strewn out over miles, and there's only three – there'd be only three trucks um, protecting miles of semi-trucks. And you're going anywhere from 30 miles an hour to, I mean, those Humvees aren't fast by any means. So I think our, our, our convoy speed was like 50 miles an hour, 55 miles an hour, something like that. And they top out like at 65. <laughs> so if you got to play catch up, it can take a while. Um, yeah, no kidding. Did you ever so, like, was there ever like gunfight during that? Like was... We, that that was, sounds a little scary, quite frankly. It was interesting because we we'd see tracers and stuff going over, and we get shot at. Um, there really wasn't anything to do, um, and luckily, um, our convoy what didn't get shot at um, while we were stopped. Because then you can actually you can actively engage the enemy. Our job was just to go. You don't stop. Unless you absolutely have to, you get you get your equipment there, you get your stuff there, you t- pick up another convoy, and you come back south, and you get there. So you do everything within your power to not stop, right? So there's no potty break on the way, right? Um, right. So you don't stop and go to the bed. Like we, we, a lot of water bottles got chucked out the side of our Humvee, so. Um, filled with uh, urine. I mean, that's that's what you did, and, and we didn't stop. So right. there were times I remember being, um, seeing tracers flying over over my head and, and, and things like that, um, or just weird stuff would happen, but thankfully, like, we weren't ever engaged. My convoy was never personally engaged um, while we were halted. Um, but I think one of the – so I – my job – is I sat in the turret and I was the gunner for our truck. And because the three of us in my truck were all um, sergeants at the time, we were all E5s, which was unheard of. People thought it was like the craziest thing that we were all that rank and we're all in the same truck. Um, but we were E5 heavy in our unit. So the three of us got were in the truck together. Um, we were kind of like the – it seemed to me at the time like we were kind of the go-to within our our squad because um, we could handle business, we could take care of stuff, and so 
we oftentimes got stuck as the the truck that ran in the middle of the convoy. So you had a truck in the very front and you had a truck in the very back and you had a rover truck in the middle that would go up and down the line of the convoy to make sure everything was good. And that's where we spent most of our time. Um, and um, it's, so when like a truck would break, a semi truck would break down or something like that, we were, our our squad leader thought we were, he could trust us to get whatever it was taken care of as quickly right. as possible and get moving again. Cause that's, he didn't, we don't like to stop. I and mean, we were just sitting ducks cause it, it would take quite a while to get all, all those semi trucks moving again. It would take quite a long time. So, um, we're fortunate that we didn't, we didn't take any fire or anything like that as, as a halt to a convoy. And just weird stuff would happen at different times. And, um, I think that's when, We were running, so it's 150 miles one way and running, driving 300 miles a day. And there were times when you would leave at uh, just, I mean, for example, you'd leave at 8 o'clock in the morning one day, and then you'd come back at 8 o'clock at night. And then you would be tasked with a mission that started like at 2 o'clock the next morning and come back. Yeah, I mean, it was just the tempo was go, 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 all the time. And good days, your your mission would last, you know, 12 hours on horrible days. I mean, there are horrible days, you're 24 hours, you're, you're up, and you're just constantly going. And, and for me, I'm kind of a intense person anyway. I'm uh, over analytical, and I overthink things that I, I'm a worry wart by, by um, just by design. And so I didn't want anybody else to be up there in the turret because I, I knew I would do a better job or I felt I would do a better job. And mm-hmm. so I think it it wore on me a lot. So I was always worried. Um, and I was always alert. I was always um, looking down the road. I was always seeing things. And, I you know, I was always just – I was always just in the moment trying to make sure that I was I was doing the best job that I can – I, I was scared because, I mean, I didn't even touched on, like, IEDs. We we never got hit with an IED. My convoy never got hit with an IED. But it, I worried about it constantly. Like, I would tell people, like, I prayed for every inch of road that we traveled, that it wouldn't blow up underneath us. And just to have that that feeling all the time really, um, really ate at me and really, I really struggled with it. Um, afterwards. Oh, of course. Um, so I never turned off. So I would never relaxed. And so you have already um, a guy that's already amped up all the time who can't relax. And now he's even more amped up and he can't relax. Um, I left over there. Um, I, I was probably 140 pounds, 145 pounds when we left. And by the time I came home after a year of being Overseas, I weighed like 115, 120. Um, wow. I was sick, sick. I couldn't eat. Um, uh, my wife still to this day uh, remembers, I mean, I would be starving. And uh, I met her after I came back. But um, I would be starving. And we'd go out to eat or we'd go sit down to eat something. And I'd like take two or three bites out of it. And I just couldn't eat anymore. I would just be sick. 
I would be nauseous. I wouldn't throw up or anything. I would just be so sick. Um, my stomach was just in knots all the time. So it really, it really, um, it took its toll on me physically and took a toll on me mentally. And, and so, you know, there we were, we were just doing our job. We were doing, doing what we were supposed to be doing and, and going down the road and, um, making the most of it. I mean, me and my crew were, we, <laughs> our, our squad leader liked this, but I, I also, there was also a lot of times when he would just kind of shake his head and put his head down and shake his head like all these guys, you know, stuff like that. But, um, <laughs> Do you remember one of those times in particular? Like, is there one that stands out more than the rest? Um, no, we just always kind of had, we were just jokesters. We were always just kind of joking around, talking trash and, and, and doing, um, just saying and doing stupid things and, um, you know, trying different things or, you know, I mean, nothing really stood out, but we were just kind of always making each other laugh, always trying to, to just keep everybody's spirits up. Um, my brother who served in the army before me, he was, um, he, he deployed in the nineties to Bosnia and did all that stuff. And he said, before we left, we were, I was talking to him before I left on this deployment. He said, Jeremy, just, Whatever you do, find something every day that'll make you smile or it's something you can laugh at. Um, and so I really held on to those words and it, and that, that helped me through, helped me through a lot. And it didn't, I mean, it also helped that the guys that I worked with were funny and could make me laugh. Um, well, the three of us, me, Brian and Joey, we, we worked incredibly well together. Um, none of, we didn't, none of us really cared who was in charge we just got the job done and um and i still to this day those guys uh still mean an incredible amount to me i mean we're like i don't talk to them um very often i think i talk to brian maybe once a year maybe um but we pick up right where we left off and and um he's a family man up near chicago now and he's doing his thing and he was actually um kind of interesting side note brian wasn't even American, wasn't even an American citizen. Um, really? He was, yeah, he had his green card and, uh, he's Bulgarian. So he was a Bul he was a Bulgarian citizen. Um, and he was trying to get a citizenship and, um, good dude. I mean, I, I love the guy to this day and, um, I, uh, thank God for social media because I can follow along on the, on, on what he's doing. So, um, him and then, uh, the big driver, Brian was our, our truck commander and then our driver was, his name was Joey. Um, he was born in Panama and, um, and, uh, he was another good guy. We just got, we clicked and we worked well together and, um, kind of lost touch with him after we got home. I know he volunteered right away to go back on another deployment and then, uh, kind of lost touch with him, uh, for a long time and then, Coincidentally, like it was yesterday or the day before, he um, <laughs> he found me on social media and, and called me on the phone. And he's like, hey, dude, what's up? What's going on? And so um, I was like, dude, you have no idea. I've been Googling the guy trying to find him like on Google and trying to track him down because I didn't know I didn't know what happened to him after his last deployment. I, but I always thought about him. I was like, I wonder whatever happened to Joey. And, and he's good. He lives in Florida now. He's a family man. He's doing his thing. And so um, – 
it's really cool to to hear that he's doing well and 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 living life, you know. So, oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Now, were those uh, guys were those guys because you did more than one deployment in the army, didn't you? No, not overseas. Um, not my, overseas. My okay. One, but I was deployed. I wasn't. I was activated stateside uh, for a number of different missions. Um, so understood. Okay. I, so to kind of put it in perspective, I spent nine and a half years total in my military service. Of that nine and a half years, I was in the National Guard for probably seven and a half. Okay. And I was mm-hmm. on active duty in some fashion or another in support of some kind of mission for seven and a half years. Wow. Did you ever get so, to serve with those guys again? Like, were you ever on a team with them again? Uh, no. Um, we kind of parted ways. Um, the last two and a half years of my, I'd say the last two years of my uh, National Guard career, I kind of just hold up. Um, I knew I was struggling. I was having a rough time after we came back. Uh, I had some medical stuff that um, I was trying to get cleared up and, you know, like not being able to eat and gaining weight and stuff like that and some other stuff that I was trying to deal with. And so I just kind of left that last two and a half, two, two and a half years alone and tried to get on with my life and do something that I do something else. Um, And so um, I didn't. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't ever see him. I I went to Chicago that March after we got home. We got home in November, two thousand six, and I went to Chicago for St. Patrick's Day, a, a bar crawl <laughs> for St. Patrick's Day in Chicago with Brian. That's where he was from, and it was uh, it was an incredible. That was an incredible experience. Let me tell you. <laughs> um, uh, needless to say, um, I. Alcohol became a pretty heavy focus of mine, especially after I came home. Um, I I don't want to say I I did. I struggled with alcohol a lot after I came home. Um, I came home with a lot of money in the bank, and I don't. All I know is that I had a lot of bar tabs that were paid from that money that I brought home, and nothing really to show for it. Uh, so I literally drank everything that I earned while I was overseas. So, um, that was a good experience. I got some awesome stories to talk about that. I wonder if there's a podcast out there about drinking beer. <laughs> <laughs> well, I honestly, no, but in, in all seriousness, I mean, I know that was a, r- a rough time and I want to, I want to ask about that, but at the same time, I mean, do you have a story from then that was just like, I don't know, just a highlight? After coming home? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, honestly, um, the highlight of me coming home was uh, meeting who's now my wife, meeting Rose. Um, I met her in, the, in June after um, I got back, so I'd only been back like six, seven months. And that mm-hmm. was like the high, highlight of my um, – highlight of of me coming home there was a 
while I was over there, so I grew up in the mountains. I grew up spending time, a lot of time in the mountains and doing stuff. And while I, while I was over there, all I ever wanted to do was just be go back to the mountains. And December, you know, I got home in November. In December, we went up. Our family has a cabin in New Mexico in the mountains here. And um, I remember going up there with my brother and sister-in-law, and it was the dead of winter. It's in December. There's snow blanketing the ground. I remember just standing there and looking across the valley and just tears were just rolling down my face because it was just the most beautiful thing I had ever seen. And that's all I wanted to do was just to be there in the mountains. And that was the only place I, I kind of realized at that moment that that that's the only place where in the month that I'd been home where I felt any kind of peace. Um, I could, I felt comfortable in my own skin. Um, uh, but I, I really spent a lot of time between November and June, July, August, um, consuming, uh, a lot of alcohol, drinking a lot. Um, and I don't have much of a recollection of, of that time. I, I know I met Rose in, in June and then by, we had our first date in July. And then um, by August, September, um, I knew that I had to, I had to be careful, or she was going to leave me. <laughs> so, um, so I, I did my best to um, curtail the alcohol uh, drinking, mm-hmm. and I drank beer. I, mean, I was never like a hard liquor guy, but I, I drank a lot of beer, and I would. So I wasn't doing it every day. So now I would do it like on the weekends. That was my idea of curtailing it. Um, and so uh, I realized at one point that at some point that if I kept doing that, then I was just going to push her away. And she was really the only thing that I had to look forward to. Um, I, that first six, seven months, I had known I was in pretty bad shape. I just couldn't, as I would say, I just can't get right. I just can't get right. Things in my head and things the way I was feeling and emotions and anxiety, things that I used to enjoy, things that I tried to do after I came home just weren't right. And um, I, I, it, there was a couple times in there where, where I just thought, well, I'll just call it quits and, and end it on that note because I just couldn't make it happen. But when I met her, it was like, well, I, I can do it for her. Um, and I can, I can try to make the best of it. So, um, when we met in that June, July and started dating on our first date, our, our first date was like a 12 hour date. That's how well we hit it off. So that's awesome. Yeah. So it started out as like a lunch date and then we went and ate lunch and hung out and then, um, we went back to my apartment or something like that. And, um, we're, we were watching movies and stuff and, we went to Taco Bell for dinner, and I, I was like, "This is, this is my kind of girl right here. I don't even have to take her out for like a fancy supper. I could take her to Taco Bell for dinner. We could watch, <laughs> watch movies and just hang out. And we were, we were just hanging out and talking and just being, just having a good time. So, um, um, it was pretty, it was pretty awesome to have someone there that didn't know me from before, um, and have an expectation. It felt like." Um, I really struggled 
because I because I felt like I should be somebody I should be the same person um, that I was before I left and I, I was already starting to, to to understand that like deep down and um, I, I, I battled with that for I still battle with that to this day that's why I'm a little misty but um, I still battle with that uh, but I have a better understanding today than I did then of who I'm, who I'm supposed to be now. Um, but, um, my, so that was like the highlight of, of, uh, like after coming home. Oh, and buying, I bought a TV. Uh, <laughs> 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 I bought, um, I just come home. So the only thing I had to show for that, all that money that I made over there was, um, I came home. So in 2005, I bought a 42-inch plasma screen TV, and it cost me like $1,600. And my wife and I – No, it wasn't. I mean, and me and my wife were just – we were walking to Walmart the other day, and we were looking at the – we walked by the TVs. And you could buy like a 55-inch, you know, whatever it is – uh, like a what do they call it? LED or LCD screen TV now for like six hundred dollars, six hundred dollars, right? Like a high end one. I was like, yeah. So that was, so that was like a high end TV back in the day, and, and it doesn't, it's gone. It doesn't even work anymore. I, had to, <laughs> I, cry, I literally, my my, I cried the day that TV died. <laughs> that was all I had to remind me of 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 all the hard hard work I did. So. Yeah, of course. So, so yeah, so um, part of my deployment, to touch on it, um, the last couple months of my deployment with the Army, uh, we got moved back, and uh, I was, again, um, shifted. I got shifted to Doha, Qatar, or Qatar, however you want to say it, Doha, and where I did security at the Central Command Headquarters there in Doha. And um, I was on a security detail again. How I got there, I could never understand. But uh, I spent the last couple months of my deployment there, sitting in a guard shack, um, sweating profusely all night long. Um, I worked the night shift, and it was to kind of put things in perspective on how hot and humid it is in Doha, Qatar, and um, oh, the summertime, I guess. It would be hot, hot during the day, and I slept, but so humid there that we'd have the air conditioner running inside of our guard shack. And they were maybe like 10 by 10 shacks and they were all metal and they're metal and armored and everything like that. And, um, we would, uh, have the air conditioner cranked in there to the point where the outside of the guard shack would sweat. The condensation so I'd have to go out there with a squeegee and squeegee off the window so I could see outside of my guard shack. Um, oh my that's how God. hot. It, yeah. <laughs> so it was hot. I mean, 130 degrees out there, you know, during the daytime and humid and in Doha and stuff like that. I worked at night. So it was like 80 degrees, 90 degrees at night and hot and humid and it was just miserable. So, but yeah, we came home November. 2005 
and I came home in December. That December, Albuquerque saw like one of the biggest snowstorms it's ever had in recorded history. <laughs> you went from one extreme to the next. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. It was, it, it was, it was. The whole city shut down. I mean, it doesn't take much to shut down Albuquerque, but it like really shut down. We had like six, eight inches of snow, and it was, it was, it was crazy. So, um, so I came back and yeah. So that was that was that. Um, and so I worked some different jobs after I I got out. Um, after I came home and I avoided. Um, going to the monthly drill that I was supposed to go to, but I was going and just kind of making my appearance and hiding out in the corner and, um, uh, struggling. Um, I was struggling. And then in 2010, I, I finally got my, I, they asked me if I wanted to reenlist and I laughed at, I literally laughed at the recruiter and, um, the the re- recruiting and retention NCO and um <laughs> I no and I got out I got my walking papers in 2010 and then got out and worked some different jobs and worked in law enforcement a little bit I was a drove the paddy wagon for the police department if you will and um, went back to college um, I earned my degree um, which is in and of itself is a pretty interesting story. Um, I don't have much recollection of going to college. It was very difficult um, attending class and being in that environment where I was surrounded by people all the time. So I would I would try to pick my classes early in the morning. For one, there's less students on campus, but I could get to I could get to the uh, lecture hall or I could get to the classroom and pick my spot in the back corner closest to the door before anybody else got there. That was why, that's why I picked my classes the way I did. So, um, what did you choose to major in? I majored in uh, geography and I minored in history. Um, I wanted, I majored in geography. I got a bachelor of science in geography from the university of New Mexico. Um, and I, Focus my studies on uh, like public land management or land management and cartography, GIS. So I wanted to make maps um, for the Forest Service. Awesome. That's what that's I really what awesome. I really wanted. Yeah, and um, that's what I really wanted to do. That, and so this whole time and these few years between me coming home and going to college and stuff like that. Um, elk season was like the highlight of my year. It was like a five-year-old, a five-year-old's Christmas. Uh, it was really the only thing on that, that I lived, I lived for. Um, Cause that's the only time I would ever feel at peace. I was going out to the woods and going elk hunting or just being out in the woods. That's the only time I could ever really feel at peace and at ease with myself and just kind of not, not worry about anything. Um, and there came a point when, uh, it was a few years after Rose and I had been together. We got married on our fifth anniversary, dating anniversary. 
so I didn't have to remember more than one date because I'm a smart guy. <laughs> so we got, but in all those years, I, I remember Rose telling me one time, um, "You're never here. You're never home." I said, "What do you mean? I'm, I'm always, I'm always home." She's like, "No, you're never home. You're home for like two weeks before elk season and for like two weeks after elk season, but you're really never home." And I didn't really understand the whole. I didn't understand that, and I'll get into that later. Um, but I never understood that. Couldn't get it. And so, spending time in the elk woods, going elk hunting, or just being out in the woods—that's what I really. That's what kept me going. And um, somewhere along the way, like things would, things were chiseling away at what I had left. So, um, I think 2011, 2012, um, my aunt, my aunt passed away. Um, she, she had multiple, multiple sclerosis and, um, she passed away. She was a very, um, uh, inspirational lady. She was, she was very near and dear to not just me, but also to Rose. And that was very difficult for me to grasp. Um, I started hating at that point. I really started hating things and I felt like I, at, at a time, at that time I was being punished. Um, I was being punished by God for things that I had, I had done or, or whatever. And so I couldn't wrap my head around the fact that I couldn't wrap my head around anything else. I was just very angry at that point. Um, and then, um, after I graduated from, college i got a job with the u.s forest service i started fighting wildland fires as a wildland firefighter for two seasons um and i absolutely loved the job it was so awesome um i loved every minute of it but my body didn't like it (laughs) um you know after being in the military and stuff like that and being the age i was in my early 30s at this point um i just my body couldn't do it um and so they found out that um, my degree was in geography and I knew how to use like ArcGIS and I knew how to make maps and stuff like that. So they pulled me in and I started doing fuels management stuff my last my last season, which was exactly what I wanted to do. Um, so I was planning prescribed burns and helping plan that kind of stuff. Um, and they were working on a get a, getting a job for me doing that full time, but it never really things just never really panned out for that. Um, and so I got laid off for my last season there. And just before, uh, at the beginning of my second season, um, my oldest brother passed away uh, uh, very suddenly. Uh, he was 44 years old. He, he, he passed away in his sleep. And um, that rocked, that just rocked me. I was, that just had me, uh, it had me reeling. I couldn't, like, it, it's still hard to think about, but, like, it, it really took its toll on me when I lost my brother. And, um, so at, at about this time, I'm starting to, to see how the impacts, you know, I'm able to look back on this. At the time, I'm just oblivious to the, to what's going on. I knew that, I was struggling to just 
live life. Um, things like going to the grocery store or going out in public and doing things like this were becoming increasingly difficult. I was withdrawing more and more. Um, and then took another job with the Forest Service in HR. And then my aunt, my other aunt, who I was very, very close to, she passed away. She, um, oh my she, gosh. Yeah, so she died of cancer, and that was it. That was, I, I hit, I hit rock bottom. And she was, uh, she was the only one I ever really talked to about anything, about having a hard time or dealing with anything that I was dealing with. Um, and I lost her. I, I felt like I had my wife and I had to protect my wife. I had to protect my mom. I had to protect my parents from um, from the things that I was feeling and I was going through. I had to protect them and shield them from that because I didn't want to be a burden and I didn't want to them to worry about my well-being. And so um, that little outlet that I had within my family that wasn't a, a – a doctor or something like that, that little outlet that I had um, was gone. And uh, that's, um, that's when, that's when things really started falling apart for me inside. Um, And I started to devise a plan to take my own life Um, and how I was going to, I still think about it to this day, how I was going to do it and stuff like that. Um, and because I couldn't, I couldn't deal with, I couldn't deal with anything and I couldn't be the husband that my wife deserved to have to be, you know, outgoing and go have fun and go do things. I couldn't, you know, be the son to my parents and I just wasn't living up to what I thought their expectations were of me. Um, I couldn't be the brother that I was before I left. I mean, there were there were a lot of things in there. I felt like I was I had to be someone other than who I was. And if I would remove myself, that they would move on with life, and I would no longer burden them with with anything. I wouldn't burden them anymore. Um, my wife wouldn't have to worry if she wanted to go to the mall and go shopping she she could just go she wouldn't have to worry about me tagging along and being uncomfortable and having to go back to the car um wouldn't have to worry about um i love to go to baseball games we have a triple a team here in albuquerque um and i love to go to the ball games but i would have to go i'd have to pregame before i go to a baseball game just to watch a baseball game I'd have to drink before I left. And then I would drink till the seventh inning stretch and then we'd leave. <laughs> um, because I couldn't cope. I couldn't cope with my surroundings. I couldn't cope with anything. Um, and it was becoming increasingly uh, difficult for me to just, I wasn't living. And um, I never told, I never told a soul about any of my plans or anything like that. I did go to the doc. I had a, a very good um psych doctor at the VA. She's incredible. Um, I told her 
And I was at one point going to, I think I was going to see my psych doctor once a week um, for appointments just to keep me from, from going over the edge. And I don't think I ever really wanted to die. Mm-hmm. I think I just wanted everything to stop. I just didn't, I wanted, I wanted it to stop. I wanted the pain to stop. I wanted the guilt to stop. I wanted the, the, the feeling like I'm a, a burden on the folks around me to stop because I knew ultimately over time that the pain would get easier for them to deal with after I was gone. I never, I never wanted to hurt anybody and I felt like I was hurting them so much more by being around. And, um, it came to a head, and I, I, like I said, I didn't want to die, but I just felt like that was the only way I could make it stop. And um, I, I just kind of held out, and I waited um, for the right moment. I had problems. I had a job, and was having problems with my job. I was asking for help at my job, and. Um, Parts of the job were causing me a lot of stress and and strain, and I would ask for help, and they tell me no. Like I'd ask for help specifically, um, like does reasonable accommodation cover this? Because I am, uh, I do have a disability. I was I was diagnosed with post traumatic stress disorder. I'm gonna say about 2011, 2010, 2011, and I was I. And I went to the VA and went through all the stuff. And I think that, yeah, so I, I had PTSD and, and some other anxiety stuff going on. So I asked for I asked for help at work, and they were like, no. That was like their response. I was like, hey, I'm really struggling in this area because of this, and this is because of this. Can we remove me from that for a while? Until I can mm-hmm. kind of regain my composure, I'm like no, can't. And I was like, all right. Um, and then somehow, some way, somebody else in the in where I was working found out that I had um, that I had PTSD, and he uh, walked by my desk. I think the first one was he walked by my desk one day. He's like. Hey, uh, how's your PTSD acting up today, or something like that? And I didn't really, I didn't think I heard him out right. He said, "How is your PTSD acting up today, or something like that?" And I didn't really, it's like he didn't really just say that. Right? That was kind of my response. And then a few days later, he walked by my desk again, and the dude that I sat next to, that I worked with, real close with, um, he heard it this time. The guy walked by and was like, "Hey, look, it's PTSD, Jeremy." And Are you kidding me? No, it, it actually happened. And um, I about came over my desk. I just sat there and I just stared at the screen of my computer. And the other dude that I worked with, he was in the army too. He's a he's a uh, he was the first cav, uh, an infantry guy. So him and I were t- like that was all I had at work. And um, right. He looked over as like the Kilroy was here kind of thing. He looked over his cubicle and he looked down at me. He's like, dude, did he just effing say that? I was like, so you heard it too. He was like, yeah. And that, that 
so that happened. Um, and so here's the classic story of, of, of an incident that something probably should have been dealt with right then and there on the spot. But I looked at the situation. I said, I have to work here. I don't have a choice. I have to work. I have to work here. I don't, I got to find another job. I'm, I'm looking for another job, but I have to work here. And it doesn't do me any good to go making waves because he was a supervisor. So if I go make waves, then it's just going to become a big old mess. And do I really want to live in that mess until I can get out of here? So I promised myself um, that when I, if I ever got the opportunity to leave, that I would make it very, very clear that that took place, when that took place, and and um, that was a big part of the reason why I was leaving. Um, and so I wrote it out, and I had to, uh, uh, my wife, Rose, like, when I told her about what happened, she, like, came unglued. It was quite interesting um, to see her. Like, she's she's in the same room while we're doing this, so I, I like, looked over at her when I told that story, and, like, the look on her face. It was like, what, you're like, are you kidding me? Like, she still, to this day, gets very upset about it. Um, and so there... So there it was. I was at the. I was at the very. I was at rock bottom. I wouldn't let anybody know. They knew I was struggling. I, my wife knew I was struggling. My parents knew I was struggling. Um, um, we would go to visit my mom and dad, and I would. We would go for a couple of days, and I would try to stay as distant as I could be. Um, I would, we would go there, but I was always somewhere else. I would go leave the house and go other places and do other things. Um, and then in October, um, I read an article about a a program in Montana. And I'm going to pause real quick, Paige, because mm-hmm. I don't – I that's why I, I left a pause in there so you could edit it out. I'm not going to talk about the program that I went through. Um, I don't, I'm not going to mention them by name specifically or how I came to find it because I don't necessarily believe in how they do things and what they do. And I don't, I don't, I don't promote them through our organization. They're a good organization, but, um, they're really touchy about having their name mentioned anywhere. Um, Oh, okay. Thank you for telling me that. That's, that's really good to know. Yeah, so I'm going to – that's why I paused in there. So I'm going to kind of tell the story. I came across a program, and this is what happened, and I'll kind of make that generic, and then I'll go, I'll go from there. But So I'm going to I'm – No, thank you for that heads up, so I won't ask you <laughs> I won't ask you questions to be more detailed. Yeah, so af- after this, I'm just going to – I'm, I'm going to pause for a couple seconds mm-hmm. so you know you have that big window in there, and I know you can edit that out. You're perfect. Thank you for that. Okay, so I went through this program and um I I came across it on on the internet and um basically horses in the in the wilderness and the backcountry and stuff like that. And it just it made sense to me wanting to be in the woods all the time, trying to pick a career path and what's gonna put me in the woods, um, having grown up around horses, it's like, okay, well going back to I didn't really want to die, but I really couldn't find, figure out how to live. 
And I thought to myself, this could be the last, this could be the, my last like ditch effort at changing my life and changing how I look at things. And I, I it was worth a shot. So um, I applied to the program and this was like in October. Um, and then in, um, I totally forgot all about it. Totally forgot all about it. And in the following March, um, I got a phone call and I answered the phone. It was somebody from this program and they, you know, asked me, are you still interested in participating? We're putting our group together for this season coming up and are you interested? And, um, and they were like, I was like, uh, yeah, I said, well, you know, we want to interview you further, but if you're interested, we need to make sure that you can make this stuff and to make the dates and whatnot. And I said, yeah, I just need to talk to my wife. And um, my wife was working for a local publication company here in Albuquerque, the marketing person for them. And um, I was almost literally speechless. Um, I couldn't hardly talk. I couldn't believe that I'd been chosen potentially to participate in this program. And I went to my my bosses, my my direct supervisor, the, the lady that I worked for was an awesome lady. And I just went to her went to her desk, and she looked up at me and she's like, "Oh my God, are you okay?" And I said, "I have to go." She's like, "Go." And that was it. I I jumped in my truck and I drove I drove down the road to to Rose's work, and I, I had texted her or something like that and said, um, "I'm coming to see you right now. I have news." I'm coming to see you right now. And my poor wife is probably thinking like, okay, somebody else died. Something very awful is happening. Like, um, oh, I said I had great news. And um, um, and so I, I went to her office and she was there with her boss. And I walked in the door and I can only imagine the look that I have on my face. Rose says that um, I looked like I ran over the dog. <laughs> um I really couldn't say I couldn't say anything, and so uh, I showed her this thing about the program, and um, she was like, "That's really cool." I said, "They asked me to go," and she said, "Well, you have to go." That was it. That was the conversation, and um, I called them back and said, "Hey, I'm I'm all in," and. I hung up the phone and regretted telling them that I was all in. I remember like I, I committed to it. Now I can't back out. Now I'm committed. There's no, I have to go through this. No matter how hard it gets, no matter how awful it can be, I have the biggest fear of the unknown out of anybody you've ever talked to in your life. Um, I have to go through it. And I have to go through every step of it and, and do everything I have to do everything because there's another there's another veteran out there who applied that didn't get picked that maybe needed it more than me and if nothing else I have to go at it 100% because I have to come back a better husband for Rose that's the way I looked at it um and so the next couple months were interesting it was really difficult cuz I'd go back and forth and I'd be really be really excited and then I'd just start freaking out. And um we <laughs> um 
rose. I, pa- I was packing up all my stuff to go for the first two week phase. And, um, I was thinking to myself is like, I felt like I was leaving for basic training all over again. I kept asking myself, Oh my God, what did I get myself into? What am I doing? Um, how am I going to do this? Uh, my doctor, my psych doctor at the VA, I told her about it. I made an appointment literally the day after I found out I, I had been accepted to the program and I made an appointment and told her about it. And she said, I will do absolutely anything that you need me to do that takes a doctor's signature to make sure that you can go. So um, I got approved for FMLA. Um, I could take extended leave. I could do all kinds of stuff from work um, and, and be able to go and still get paid and take care of my bills and stuff while I was gone. I scrounged every hour of vacation and sick time that I had together to go, to go do this so that we wouldn't fall short on, um, I got leave, leave donated to me from other people that I worked with. Um, one person, I don't, I'll never know who it was, but I know that one person donated an entire week of leave to me. Wow. So I could go participate in this program. And so I went. Um, my wife took me to the airport and she stopped where TSA will not let, would not let her go any farther. And I gave her a big hug and a kiss and I walked through security at TSA and, um, that was, uh, I think that was the last time my wife saw me as who I was before. Um, and got on the plane, flew there all the while, like my hands are on my head going, what am I doing? Like, what am I doing? You have to do this. You have to do it for Rose. You have to do it because you have to come back better. You have to make the most of it. Um, you're not going to get any better just going at it half-assed. You have to go at it um, and give it your all, no matter what. And you have to follow through to the end. That's what I kept telling myself over and over and over. Then we got there, and um, um, I went through the first part of the, the first phase and learning horsemanship again. and and spent like eight days or something like that, nine days in the back country uh, on a horse um, that was really kind of uh, set the stage for growth in me. That horse really challenged me. He was a challenge. Um, he was very difficult to work with. Uh, didn't like uh, any other horses being around him. Um <laughs> There was a a couple moments during that first phase where um, they were pivotal moments in my life. Um, I've never been a big fan of lightning and thunder, um, and I didn't like it anymore then. Um, We had rode up to this basin up in the high country on horseback, and... um, after all we had done and all I had been through within that program and within that process, um, I was like toward the back of the string um, and it was raining and it was thundering all around me. And I, and I was sitting on the back of this horse and tears were just draining down my face. And I kept thinking to myself, look at you, you're doing it. 
you're not going to do it. You're not trying to do it. You're doing it. You're here. You're doing it. You're dealing with an unruly horse in the middle of the wilderness, <laughs> and you're doing it. Um, that was one of, like, the biggest moments, and I was just – I was crying because um, I was doing something. I was actually doing something, and the, uh, there was that sense of peace that came along with being in the woods and uh, the sense of challenge that came along with working with this horse. And then there was another incident where um, we're on this path. It can't be more than three, four feet wide. Um, and it's pretty much a cliff going straight up. And it's pretty sheer going straight down on the other side of me. And I was ponying a horse behind me on the horse that didn't like me. <laughs> and um, ponying is where you have them a halter on another horse and you're pulling them along behind you. You're leading them along behind you. And those two horses didn't get along and we're on this path and somehow the horse that I was ponying uh, ended up in front of me facing me. Oh no. And Yeah. And so I had to, I had to figure it out. Nobody was going to do it for me. And it was then that I realized um, how incredibly capable we are as service members, what we're given. Um, we're given, um, as a friend of mine, I just recently, I just made, recently made a friend, uh, Brian told me, the only thing that you were entitled to in the military was three hots and a cop, but you gained so much more from it. And what I really learned was how to deal with situations under stress and how to just think through and just make things happen um, when other people will fall to pieces. And I just made a choice, and I made it work, and I used my head, and I was able to think clearly to, to get through the situation and got back on the path and got going down the trail the way I was supposed to. And um, we survived, and we lived through it. And I realized then, I was like, it was an aha moment. I was like, you're not broken. Jeremy, you're not broken. You can do, you can do whatever you want to do. There's nothing broken about you. You're just you've just changed and um, uh, wrapped up that phase of the program. And so they sent us home for like two, three weeks between phases, um, came home and I Rose picked me up at the airport and she was shocked. I mean, was, I mean the look on her face was, she was genuinely like shocked. She was like, where's my husband? Who is this guy? Um, I was starting to fill up with life again. I was starting to talk about doing things that I hadn't or wouldn't do before. I was willing to try things. I was willing to go places. Um, and it was interesting because I was serious about it. Like I always talked about, hey, let's go do this or let's go do that. And when it the time would roll around for that to actually happen. I'd be like, oh, well, you know, I'm not feeling so good. Or I'd get angry. Um, oftentimes when I felt uncomfortable about going into a situation or going and doing things, that's when anger would come out of me because I was angry at myself for being anxious and uncomfortable with going, doing things like going to the zoo with my nieces and nephews. That would make me angry. And I'm like, let's go to the zoo. I'm all for it. Let's go. You know, 
it'll suck for a little bit, but I can get through it, right? Wow. I can make it through. Yeah. And so I went back for the second phase, and the second phase was even more intense. Um, it, a lot more weight um, of of and responsibility rested rested on our shoulders. Um, and while I was there on the first phase, um, I don't want to try not to use. I'm not going to use his real name, but his name's Ken. Um, Ken was a, a a guy that I met, and he was a volunteer for the program. And he really, him and I just clicked. He's an old guy, he's, you know, pushing eighty, uh, old cowboy, um, uh, just been cowboy in his whole life, doing pack trips up in the mountains. That's just his life, you know. And uh, during that first phase, I I talked earlier about having all this anger inside of me, and from from the time my aunt passed away until um, that day in June, um, I referred to God as Fred. I called God Fred, and I would I would talk I would, you know talk about how Fred hated me and and how I, how miserable and um, I would pray. I would still pray. I never gave up on praying, um, but I would um, I'd pray to Fred, and I uh, sat down and talked to Ken about this. Um, about this and about my situation, about what I'd gone through. And um, um, he was like, well, good. At least you never stopped. You know, that was his response <laughs> to it. You know, and um, him and I hit it off. And he was like my, he was my buddy. Um, and I, I kind of just latched onto him. And there's another guy um, that I kind of latched onto and, he just kind of made uh, – I, I would go to them for answers about the horse stuff or anything like that. So the second phase rolls around, and we're all reunited. Um, some of the folks that I started the program with uh, quit. They they didn't want to continue through with it. There was another guy. Um, he passed away. He, um, he died of uh, complications or something between phases, and that was kind of – shocking and like kind of rocked all of us but um i went back nonetheless and this time i was more like excited to go like yeah let's go back out there and get after it um and so we spent another like two weeks in the mountains and spent a lot of time with ken um working um thinking about things and he really helped push me um helped push me along and the third, there's a third third phase of the program where you go out and apply skills somewhere where you work, you maybe apprentice with an outfitter, or you go and do different, you, there's all kinds of different things you can do. Well, I had, I had established enough of a bond with Ken that he invited me to go to his place um, and work with him as an apprentice. Um, he's a horse trainer. He has like, 20-some horses, 30 horses at his place. And he – I wasn't interested in packing. I didn't uh, – it was too much work. <laughs> I just wanted to mess with the horses. That's all I wanted to do. I just wanted to ride the horses. I was on a horse at any opportunity I, I was given. I just wanted to be on the back of a horse. That's all I wanted to do um, through this whole second phase. And I was constantly, like, bugging Ken about – 
you know, what about this? Like, what about this? What about this? And so he invited me out to his place, and that's where I spent uh, the third phase. I got done with the second phase, went home, and had had made even more of a transformation. My wife's still going, like, you're really excited about stuff. Like, you're smiling. You're doing stuff. They're like, hey, come on. let's." And I'm like, yeah, let's go. And it's like, I want to go get this second or this third phase. I want to get it done because – if I sit here, I'm going to procrastinate and I'm not going to complete. I'm not going to complete it. Um, and I really just wanted to spend time with the horses. And so I went up to Ken's place and I spent an entire month there. Um, every day, day in and day out, um, working with horses. And wow, uh, it must have been incredible. It was an it was it was an amazing experience. It was it was him and I bonded like um, like father and son. Like I have an awesome dad, um, but it, just in a different way. Him and I bonded, uh, and he did so much more than just teach me about horsemanship. Um, that old man dragged me all over town to meet everybody in the world. Uh, going out and doing things, taking me to church on Sunday and introducing me to people, all the things that made me grossly uncomfortable, he would, he would do. And I, I think deep down he knew that I wasn't going to back out because I told him, I promise I'm going to do this through to the end and I'm going to see through it all the way and I'm going to do everything you do. So he did it on purpose. I truly believe he did it on purpose because he knew that was the only way to drag me um, out of my shell. And um, it worked. Um, by the time – I, I mean, it was incredible. Him and, his, him and his wife are incredible people. Everybody that I met there, um, they were incredible. And so this was in Wyoming. Um, and so – I mean, it was just an amazing experience and, and, you know, waking up, I'd wake up every morning to him coming in and putting a cup of coffee, uh, on the nightstand next to my bed in the bunkhouse and he'd be singing like zippity doodah, right? Just a big smile on his face. Guy's just a big, fun, loving, just character and every day, just something new and, um, hammering and drilling and hammering and drilling horsemanship and different things into my head and um i really established some good skills some solid skills while i was there and um he even gave me a mule uh, uh the mule that he gave me uh, he showed it to me for the first time uh the day after i arrived the day i arrived to his place uh, I went with him to um, to like a church function and was introduced and told to introduce myself and what I was doing there in front of all these people. How incredibly awful of a way to kick things off. That was just, it was awful. That's not, I don't, didn't like getting up in front of people. I didn't like talking to people. I just wanted to be left alone. And so that's where, that's how it started. Hi, my name is Jeremy. I'm from Albuquerque, and this is what I do. 
um, the next morning we get up, drink our coffee. I eat my pop tart and, um, we, we head out and, uh, he says, well, I got this mule from some folks. They had it and they couldn't catch him. And, uh, he's kind of cantankerous and, you know, we, uh, they said if I could catch him, I could have him. Well, I caught him. So now I have him, you know, <laughs> and, uh, he says, this is your project while you're here. I said, great. This mule's going to kill me. Uh, he was wild. He was running all over the place. They couldn't, couldn't hardly catch him. He couldn't put a lead rope on him. And that's where everything started. The learning horsemanship and getting things going and, um, within just a couple of days, I had him paltered and, and was leading him around. And then, you know, within a week, I had a pack saddle on him. And by the end of the trip, we were taking him on pack trips um, up in the mountains. Um, and I worked. That was my that was a big part of what I worked on. Um, we also worked on I worked on other horses that he had there that ranged in. Uh, levels of training and whatnot and and it um so it was starting to build confidence and the adrenaline and stuff like that of working with horses and working with kind of bronchi horses at times um that adrenaline stuff was familiar and i could see through things that maybe other people wouldn't necessarily be able to see through with just a little bit of training. So I was able to handle myself. I felt like um, better and differently than some other people would. Uh, and so the horse stuff really just grew and it just set inside me. Um, then the day came when I had to leave. And um, I went out and gave the old mule some loving on the head and told him, I'd be back for him soon, and um, uh, walked into the. I walked into the house. Val was outside doing something, or Ken was outside doing something, um, and um, Ken was outside doing something, um, kind of avoiding me. And so I went in the house. I grabbed a couple paper towels off the spool, and I walked outside. I loaded up my truck. Um, with everything that I needed and I walked outside and, and, and found Ken standing there and I looked at him and he looked at me and I handed him a paper towel and I put one up in front of my face and we both just tears started rolling down our faces. And he just said, he just kind of shook his head. He said, you did a good job. I said, well, thanks. And, uh, he gave me a big old hug and, I drove down his driveway and sobbing, like ugly crying, snot bubbles and everything. Because <laughs> um, that was probably one of the, one of the, uh, to that, to that point was one of the greatest experiences of my life. He genuinely cared about me and took me in, fed me, taught me, gave me all the confidence and all of the strength and was behind me, you know, wasn't ever mean or anything like that. I would make huge mistakes. Like, no, don't worry about that. You just get past that. That's behind you, you know, stuff like that. And, um, it was incredible. Um, and that was, 
that's like officially when I finished up the program. And uh, it was just an incredible life-changing experience.